0: Today's scripture passage can be found on page 474, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, Psalm 52, page 474, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version translation of the Bible. I want to invite you to stand up as we read this together, if you want to. hear the word of the Lord in Psalm 52. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot uproot you from the land of the living selah the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him saying see the man who would not make god his refuge but boasted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction but i am like a green olive tree in the house of god i trust in the steadfast love of god forever and ever i will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen, you may be seated. The context for our passage today um, is interesting. It's actually in the superscript, right above where you see Psalm 52 written. It says, to the choir master, a masculine of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So now you know exactly what's going on, right? Everybody's (laughs) familiar with this. No, um, so what this is referring to is in 1 Samuel, David is running, he's fleeing from Saul. So Saul is the anointed king of Israel. God says, this is my man, I want him to lead Israel. And David, as we're all familiar, he kills Goliath right? There's this big Philistine giant coming in and David's the only one that can do it. David kills him. And David doesn't just kill Goliath and then go home. He starts to become kind of a political leader, a little bit of a military leader. He has a little band of soldiers and he's faithful to Saul. He just wants to be a faithful soldier for the king. The problem is that the people of Israel start seeing the credibility that David's gaining and they start to say, hey, this guy, David, I think he'd be a good king. They, they start elevating him. They start singing songs about him. They start praising him. And when they compare David to Saul, they essentially say, Saul's a good guy. He's a good king, but David would be even better. So Saul, because of the sinfulness in his heart, he decides that He doesn't want anything to do with David. In fact, he wants to kill David. Saul, as David's rising to power, we see in 1 Samuel this slow decline of Saul where he starts steeping himself in more and more sin. Finally, Saul says, I want David dead. And so he sends his men out to go kill him. They, Doeg the Edomite here, the guy that's referred to in the superscript to our passage, um, hears that David was in the house of Ahimelech. Ahimelech is a priest and the, his house is essentially kind of a little temple, his little area of domain. David goes to the priest, Ahimelech. They know each other, and David says, hey, I'm, I'm out of food, I'm out of water. Um, I don't have a uh, sword or anything. I need some help. He doesn't tell him he's running from Saul. Ahimelech doesn't know that there's a conflict, but David just shows up one day and says, basically, I'm hungry. So Ahimelech gives him food, water, and he gives him the sword that David used to kill Goliath. Now, when David leaves... Doeg the Edomite goes and tells Saul, he says, Hey, I saw David in the house of Ahimelech. I know where we can find him. So Saul's chasing David. David's running away. Saul doesn't know where David is. And then Doeg says, I saw him. He's in the house of Ahimelech. Let's go get him. So they go to the house of Ahimelech. David's gone. Um, And so Saul approaches Ahimelech and he says, Where's David? And Ahimelech says, I don't know where he is, but I gave him a little bit of food and water and a sword. What's the problem? And Saul says, you should have known, and I'm paraphrasing, but you should have known that I'm at war with David. He's an enemy of the state. You're, now you're an enemy of the state. And so Saul turns to his soldiers and he says, I want you to kill Ahimelech. The problem is Ahimelech, just like Saul, is anointed. God is the one that says, I want Ahimelech to be a priest. Just like God anoints Saul, God anoints Ahimelech and all the priests. So Saul's soldiers say, I'm not laying a hand on Ahimelech because then that means I'm going against God myself. So they're put in between a rock and a hard place. Obey the king or obey God. And they choose God, as they should. Doeg, the Edomite, he says, I'll do it. So he turns, he kills Ahimelech, and then he kills 84 other priests, 85 in total. And then the text in 1 Samuel says that he slaughters the men, women, and children of the city in which Ahimelech was. So it's just a brutal, tragic, terrible story of just the, the height of evil and Ahimelech's desire to get ahead at any cost, including the cost of slaughtering innocent women and children. So this is the context in which David's writing. So the structure of, da- of this psalm is it's perfectly structured. David has the first four verses written about uh, the mighty man, which is basically written about an evil man like Doeg. The middle verse, verse 5, is about where the evil man is going. And then the last four verses are about the righteous man, the guy that's the opposite of the mighty man or the evil man. So um, the core of our passage is actually in the ninth verse. David says that he's trusting in the steadfast love of God. He's like a tree planted in the house of God. The, the core of it is, is that, is because David's saying, even though I have this mighty man coming after me, the king of all of Israel... Just like the President of the United States is hunting me down. Even though he's coming after me, I am like a tree that's growing and bearing fruit because I'm trusting in the steadfast love of God. So the, to get the surface of this passage is pretty simple, but the question becomes, what does it mean to trust, trust in the steadfast love of God? What is the steadfast love of God? And then how can we do it? So I can tell you if you're going through a difficult time today to trust in God, And then we could wrap up, but I haven't really helped you very much because what does it mean to trust in God and how can I do it? So we'll move through our passage looking at the mighty man, where the mighty man's going, and then we'll look at the righteous man's response to that. The first thing we notice in the first four verses is that the mighty man is, is an expert at sin. Sometimes we think of sinful people as kind of ignorant and kind of drunk and not really knowing what's going on, but David uses multiple words to get at the expert uh, precision, the craft of this mighty man. He says in verse 1, why do you boast in evil? It's, he's bragging about his evil. He's saying in verse 2, your tongue plots destruction. It's not just that his tongue destroys things, it's that it plots and manipulates and premeditates how to destroy things. It says his tongue is like a sharp razor. It's not a blunt instrument. It's not just a razor. It's a razor that's been sharpened beforehand and then used to cut and destroy Verse 3 says he loves evil and lying. Verse 4 says you love all words that devour. So what David's getting at is that this is a, he's really good at evil. This guy is stronger than David even. He's really good at what he does. We see this in our own society today. The LGBTQ community is a movement that has clothed something that God says is sin in robes of righteousness. The Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. But there's a movement in our society that says, you're a sinner unless you promote this community, unless you promote the sin that we want to promote, you're actually a sinner. If you want to participate in social justice, then you need to be for the things that God hates. And then they say, in essence, the thing that God is for are bad, and the things that we are for are good. This is done with expert craft and precision, and it, it's to be honest, it's... Um, it can be tempting to follow that line of logic. but I feel pulled in that direction. I, sometimes I think, wow, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I'm missing something here. And it's because it's expertly crafted. The sin in our hearts it manifests sometimes in ways that's just done, done so that it makes it extremely difficult to resist. And that's what David's getting at. But this, this kind of expert, expertly crafted sin isn't just something that's out there in another community. It happens in our own hearts. It happens in this own church. Sometimes we withhold our finances and we tell ourselves we're withholding from giving to God because we want to be financially secure. Jesus says in Luke 12 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. But sometimes we think, well I need a second car or a boat and so I'm going to buy that and get into debt and not be able to give to the church and I'm going to give once I pay off my boat. And what the Bible says is the exact opposite of that. You should be willing to sell what you already have in order to give to God, but we deceive ourselves and we think, well, I need to withhold so that I can become secure, which is the opposite of what the Bible says. Or sometimes we will hold grudges with one another. This, to me, I think is the most common thing in the church in terms of deceiving ourselves. We have these grudges against one another, against our brothers and sisters. And Jesus says in Matthew 5.22, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Yet we tell ourselves, it's okay for me to be angry with my brother because I'm right and my brother's wrong. So basically we say the reason I'm angry is because he's wrong about X. So as soon as my brother changes his mind, and understands that I'm right, then I'll stop being angry. That's, that's how we look to solve the problem. When the Bible's saying, you can't be angry no matter what, don't be angry with your brother. It's very serious, but we deceive ourselves, and it happens all the time. So the question becomes, which one are we? Are we the mighty man? Are we working deceit? Or are we David? Are we the, the tree planted by the house of God? Which are we? Well, the key in determining which type we are, are we the mighty man or we are we a David? It's not whether we sin and deceive, because we're all lumped into that group. We all sinfully deceive ourselves. Our tongues are all like sharp razors at times. The key difference is that David recognizes and repents when he does the same things that the mighty man's doing. Psalm 51, one psalm to the left, David's repenting for adultery and homicide, for cheating, che- cheating on his wife, with another man's wife, and for killing that man's wife. So he's repenting for that. One psalm to the left. So David is no stranger to the deceitfulness of sin, but the difference between David and the mighty man is that David says, I'm a sinner, I need to repent. And the mighty man, as we see in verse 3, loves his sin. He, He doesn't call it sin, he calls it goodness. He loves it, and he wants it to grow. That's how we can tell if we're the mighty man, or if we're like, David. So what's the ultimate result? If, we're, if we don't recognize and repent of our sin, if we don't recognize that we all, me, you, David, Doeg, the Edomite, we all have this pro- sin problem. If we don't recognize it, what's the result? Verse 5. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. There's a lot I could say about this. This is alluding to hell. This is a huge topic. Multiple sermons could be preached on this one topic. But suffice it to say, what David's, the core of what David's saying is, God's going to take care of you. If you're not trusting in God, and you're fighting against God, and you're fighting against God's children, or it might not even just be a person. The mighty man might just be something like cancer and sickness and death. What David's saying is, God's going to take care of you. You're this festering plant that's growing, that's poisonous, and it's got thorns. God's going to grab you. He's going to uproot you. He's going to take you away from where the children of God truly are. So our trust in God's justice means that we will one day laugh at our biggest fears. This is verse 6. As David then begins to the transition to the mighty man, David says, The righteous shall see in fear, and they shall laugh at him. Now the reason for the laughter, the reason for the laughter when God's going to pluck up that evil and he's going to take it away, the reason that they're laughing is not he's not laughing at the punishment. See how he says, the righteous shall laugh at him. They're not laughing at the punishment. They don't think it's great that that the person is being uprooted and cast away to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, David is saying that the righteous will laugh. It's the same word as we see in Proverbs 24, 17, 18. It says... Um, excuse me, Proverbs 31, 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. It's the same word there of laughter. So this is about the virtuous woman, and basically what he's saying is this woman, she's virtuous, she doesn't look at the future and worry, instead she laughs at it. It's the same word, it's the same idea that David's using and verse six it 's not a laughter of uh, i 'm just so glad that you 're going through this bad thing it 's a laughter of i 'm not worried about you anymore it 's a it 's a, a, a not not necessarily a disdain but just you 're irrelevant now so what david 's saying is that our trust in god 's justice means that one day we 'll laugh at our biggest fears the mighty so the mighty man is literally referred to from a human perspective, he's really mighty. He's really strong. He can really come and kill David. He's really a threat to him. But in another sense, in a more primary sense, David's using this term mighty man in a sarcastic way. It's kind of like, okay, tough guy. Like, yeah, you're so hot. Tough guy. Okay, sure. God's going to take care of you. So one day, you will look in the eye of your biggest fear, your biggest sin, your biggest struggle, death itself will stare at you in the eye when Jesus comes and you're going to go, huh, that's cute. How is David so confident? How does he get to that point? Verse 8, he says, I am like a green olive tree. He is growing and producing and being steadfast himself. He's not saying, i will be like a green olive tree. One day when God comes and uproots you, then I'm going to be strong. Until then, I'm really worried. Now David's saying, I am like a green olive tree. He is growing and producing. So why does he use the imagery of, a, of an olive tree? Well, first, olives are used for food and oil in the ancient Israelite context. So the olives are a, a prized um, food, and they put them in food, they eat them for food, and then they crush them in a giant olive press And they used it for oil. The oil is used from everything to to, um, soothe dried skin in an arid climate um, to primarily and most significantly to anoint the children of God. They would use oil to anoint not just the children of God, but primarily the priests and the kings. The people who have this extra special blessing of God were always anointed with the oil of the olive tree. Olive trees are also some of the longest-lasting. There's olive trees in Israel today that are thousands of years old. They're very hardy, long-lasting trees. Part of the reason for that is that they're evergreen. When the winter comes and the rains dry up and the sun isn't out as long, they still have green leaves and even produce olives in the midst of an arid, a dry, wintry climate when many of the other trees just look like big sticks sticking up in the air. And perhaps most interestingly, the way that olive trees are harvested is that they're beaten with big sticks. In order to get all the thousands of little olives off of the tree, they would take a big stick, sometimes get up in a ladder, sometimes from the ground, and they would hit the branches so that the olives would fall down to the ground. Seeing the light of Christ in the eyes of a person who's dying can give you strength to walk through miles and miles of suffering. Sometimes when we're going through difficult times and we're being beaten by the enemy, what happens to the Christian is that blessing falls out of you so that your Christian brothers and sisters who are around you are actually anointed with the blessings of God. If you've ever met with someone who's dying and all they want to do is praise God, you can feel the Holy Spirit on you for weeks afterwards. It's like you're entering into the holy place and you're beholding God because this person's staring death in the face and they're rejoicing still. Sometimes the trials we go through aren't just for our benefit. Sometimes they're for the benefit of our brothers and sisters. And David is saying that his confidence leads him to be like this tree because he can go through the dark winter He can be beaten by the enemy, but he's still bearing fruit. He's still a tree. He's not dead. He looks just like he does when it's summertime and everything's good. So how does he get this way? The rest of our time today we'll spend, I want to give you five ways that David becomes like this green olive tree. The big idea for today is that if God is our greatest love, we can always be joyful. This is the crux of all five of these things is that basically what David's saying is, since God's my greatest love and I hope in his love, no matter what happens to me, I'm still like a green olive tree. So let's look at the first of the five ways. The first way is that we recognize that God is for God. Verse 9, David says, because you have done it. He says, I'm going to give thanks to you because you have done it. What does it mean? What is this it that David's referring to? This uh, you have done it or he has done it, is a common phrase used to um, allude to God's salvation. This is the way that the Old Testament dozens and dozens of times refers to God's salvation. When someone in the Old Testament says God's done it, what they're referring to is salvation, either from their physical enemy or spiritual salvation or both. So David's saying, you've done it. The question is, why is God doing it? Why is God saving David? Why is David, David's confident that God's going to do it, but why is God doing it? To get the answer to that, we need to look at another psalm of David. Psalm 23.3, David says, He restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This is David explaining salvation. We've, many of us have memorized this passage. He restores my soul, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. David, That word for, it's, it's causal. It's saying the reason he does this is for this many of us think the reason we're led in passive righteousness and God leads us behind by the still waters and into the green grass is because he wants me to be really happy David's saying well that makes me really happy but that's not why God's doing it God does it for his name's sake John Piper talks about this and we'll read a quote where he talks about the fact that God does these things for us not necessarily us being the end result God's end result Is always His own glory. For the Christian, that's great news because His glory is the thing that we want the most and it makes us joyful, but it's not the end result. We are not the end result. God is. John Piper says this, God is the one being for whom self-exaltation is the most loving act because He is exalting for us what alone can satisfy us fully and forever. If we exalt ourselves, We're not loving because we distract people from the one person who can make them happy forever, God. But if God exalts himself, he draws attention to the one person who can make us happy forever, himself. He's not an egomaniac. He is infinitely glorious, all-satisfying God, offering us everlasting and supreme joy in himself. See, the failure to recognize this truth that God is for God, that the reason He's working in our lives is actually for Him, the failure to understand that always, it actually leads to a, a type of spiritual immaturity. Because failing to understand this always makes man the ultimate reason for God's work. The thought is this. It's that if, if you're experiencing trials in your life, it's because God's preparing you for a bigger blessing, with the implication being that the blessing's always in this life. One in three Americans believe that God rewards good behavior with health and wealth. The problem with this, and the reason it removes our joy and it causes us anxiety, is that when we're going through dark times and the mighty man's coming at us, we always think that we're doing something wrong. If God rewards good behavior with health and wealth, if I'm sick and I'm poor, that means that I'm doing something wrong. This is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he works in our lives for him, not for us. So if something bad is happening in our lives, He's going to work it out for something good for Him. It's not up to us to pull the right God lever to get Him to turn the hard thing into a good thing. Recognizing this truth helps us grow in our relationship with God because we become more dependent on Him. When we think that God's going to bless us if we act right, what we're doing is we're really putting our blessing on ourselves. We say, if I want to get blessed, then I need to do X, Y, and Z. And you're really not depending on God at that point, you're just depending on yourself. So this takes away our anxiety because we realize God's in control, it's not up to me, and it makes us dependent on Him because we recognize that God is going to do what He's going to do and He will be glorified. Accepting hardships for the sake of Christ makes us conquerors of the whole world because there's nothing that we fear. One of my favorite uh, movies is the Matrix trilogy, and one of my favorite characters, my favorite character, period, in the trilogy is Morpheus, because in the midst of this encroaching army, there's like these really scary-looking half-human, half-machine things always coming at him, and he's in this dinky little ship, and he has this little crew, and everyone in his crew is like, we need to get more guns and fight harder. What are you doing? And he just kind of stands there with his hands behind his back, and he's really serene and calm, and he always has a little smirk on the side of his mouth. The reason I like Morpheus so much is because he's confident in the midst of what's going on, and he's not running to the things that humans can grasp because he's looking forward to the one. They literally call it the one in the matrix. I think they're ripping it off from the Bible, but he's looking He's looking for the one. You know, he's, His confidence is not in himself, and so it gives Morpheus this ability just to be confident no matter what's happening around him. So that's the first point is that if God is our biggest love, if Christ is our biggest joy, we can't be shaken because He is for His glory and He can't lose. So the person who you love the most is all about glorifying Himself and God can't be beat by anyone, so that means that your biggest joy is unshakable. You have a foundation of perfect joy no matter what happens to you in this life. The second point is that since God saves us for himself and not for us to have great, happy lives necessarily, sometimes our prayers for well-being are actually not his will. And again, this sounds hard. We want God to be a happy, benevolent grandfather in the sky. And when we ask for the sickness to go away and we ask for more money and we ask for the relationship to get fixed, we want him to just do what we ask because those are good things. Now, what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't ask for those things. We, the Bible commands us. It doesn't ask us or recommend. The Bible commands us to ask for good things from God. We should ask for financial security. We should ask for the sickness to go away. But the point I'm making here is that sometimes, even though we ask for those good things and we're supposed to ask for those good things, sometimes it's not God's will to give us those things. And we see this in our primary example, Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, It says this, and going a little further, he, that's Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is giving us the example of what we're supposed to do in tough times. God, please let this tough time go away. Please get rid of this This evil man, please let the cancer go away. Please let the financial burden go away. Please heal my marriage. Please save my child. Please, we're supposed to do those things. Jesus does that. But Jesus also says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Why does he do that? Because God is able to take the most atrocious evil that has ever occurred on the face of the earth, the worst thing that has ever happened and will ever happen, the crucifixion of God himself, the perfect God-man, was crucified by evil hands. That's the worst thing that could ever happen. God was able to take that and turn it into the best news that could ever be proclaimed to anyone, anywhere, that we, though we were the ones that nailed Him to the cross, we get to be His children in heaven forever, enjoying His blessings by glorifying Him. If God can do that through Jesus, He can do that in our lives. So the second point is that we need to recognize sometimes... Even though we're praying for the right things, it's not God's will and that's okay because God will be glorified in it somehow. The third point is that sometimes these difficulties lead to a holy contempt for this life. Are we too comfortable here and now? Verse 9, David says, I will wait for your name. That The word wait there is a verb of action. We think of waiting as passive and not as an active thing. But the, the word is active. He's saying, I'm going to anticipate and wait for by doing things. It's like when you order something on the internet that you've really been wanting for a really, really long time, you've been saving up money for six months, and you finally buy that thing, and then they send you the little tracker, and you go online and Google the tracker, and you can see every step of the way. They print the label. They put the thing in the box. It goes to the carrier facility. It goes to their state, then your state. And it's, you're watching every step as it goes along That's what David's talking about. He says, I'm I'm waiting, but it's not like I'm forgetting about what's going on. I'm waiting as I'm looking to you. I'm, I'm hastening the day. I want you to come. I'm waiting for you. It's a verb of action. And so, sometimes these difficulties lead us to a holy contempt for life because we realize, I want God to be here so bad that this just isn't enough. David exemplifies this when he's fleeing from Saul. He was not overly comfortable with his life. In 1 Samuel 24, Saul is chasing David and David hides in the rocks. And not just like in the face of the rocks, he goes deep into a cave to hide from Saul. Saul as he's pursuing David, he finds the cave David's in, but he doesn't know David's in there. He uses the cave as a bathroom. So David so Saul's relieving himself in the cave, David knows that Saul's there. Saul doesn't know David's there. David comes up, crawls up behind Saul and cuts a corner of his robe off and then crawls back to the cave. And then later he comes up to Saul and says, hey, look, the corner of your robe that's mysteriously missing, I'm holding it in my hand because your life was handed to me and I chose not to kill you because you're God's anointed. So stop trying to kill me because I'm not your enemy. I'm actually one of your soldiers. That wasn't enough for Saul. He still pursues David. He still wants to kill David. David flees, Saul pursues. 1 Samuel 26, two chapters later, David comes upon Saul in his tent with one of David's soldiers. David and his soldier come up. They see Saul sleeping. David's soldier is standing with a spear, ready to thrust it through Saul's heart. And he turns to David and he says, I know you don't want to kill God's anointed because you're a man of God and you want to follow God no matter what, but let me do it. Just give me the order and I'll do it. That way the sin's not on you. And David says, no, don't do it because even that would make me culpable of sinning against God. So they take the water jug next to Saul's head and show it to him and say, hey, I could have killed you again. Stop pursuing me. It wasn't enough for Saul. Saul eventually dies in battle, not at the hands of David. God took care of it. But what David was doing was saying, I would rather let Saul kill me. I would rather let the bad guy who Saul kill me than for me to sin against God by laying my hand on the one that God has anointed. This is something that the world would look at and say, David, you're being foolish. God's clearly given Saul into your hands. He's pursuing you, and now he's laying here, or he's, he's relieving himself. He doesn't even know you're there. You've got your sword to the flick of the wrist. Take him down. That's what the world would say. You're being foolish. It's a tiny little corner to cut. Obviously, Saul's not on God's side, so you might as well just do God a favor and kill him. And David says, No. I'll trust in the steadfast love of God. Our fourth point is that we must hear these truths and we must hear these things from God in relationship with Him. So it's one thing for me to stand up here, the seminary student, and tell you to trust in God. But that doesn't mean a whole lot coming from me. It means a whole lot coming from God's Word. So the point is that we need to get these things from a relationship with God. See, David in verse 8 says, the reason he's strong is because he's in the house of God. He's in a relationship with God. He's near God, and God is protecting him. God is the one that's giving him that strength. The reason David uses the analogy, the, the image of a tree, is that the tree passively receives its sustenance. It gets it's food, or whatever you call it, from the sun to the leaves. What is that, photosynthesis? You know, it's passively receiving. The leaves aren't going up and harvesting the sun. The leaves are just there, and they're feeding from the sun. The roots go down in to the ground, and they're just feeding on the water. I would have used, if I was writing this psalm, I'd say, I'm like a lion. You know, I'm really tough, and I'm going to get the bad guy, and I have a big, long teeth, and I can go kill a gazelle. But David say no like I don't I don't go out and get food here and get food I just sit there in the house of God and God feeds me and I'm really really strong because of God. So we must hear these things in a relationship with God. If you had a coworker and he came up to you and said I feel like you're maybe going to get a tomorrow you probably wouldn't go home and, be, and, and make a financial decision based on it. You'd probably be like, I hope you're right, but you might not necessarily bank on it. But if your boss came to you and said, hey, I've been seeing your work, I'm really proud of what you've been doing, you deserve more money, I'm going to give you X amount of dollars on this date, you'd go home and you'd say, that's going to happen. And the reason you'd have that confidence is because you're hearing it from the source. I don't need to tell you that I'm not the source. God is the source of these truths, and so we need to hear these things, we need to study these things, we need to read about these things in books, but we also need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to apply these things to our lives. We need to ask Him, Lord, I'm struggling against the mighty man, and I want to trust in your steadfast love, and I know that you'll be glorified, and you're my greatest good. Help me. Help me to see you as my greatest good. Help me to love you above all things. This leads us to our fifth point is that Christian growth requires IV drips and not shots. What I mean by that is that just like the tree that's constantly receiving this food, we need to be constantly feeding on the Word of God. We need to be constantly in a relationship with God. What do, what do I mean by being constantly in a relationship? Essentially, I just mean praying all the time. We need to be constantly praying. The first thing I do every single morning when I wake up is I, put, I pray, God help me. It's that simple. And maybe it should be more reverent or holy, but that's just all I have most mornings because I'm so tired. And then I put my feet on the floor and I say, God help me. And then I stand up and I say, God help me. And then I somehow make it to the bathroom and I say, God help me. Just all the time I'm realizing as more time goes by, I just need God so much. I can't even put my pants on without Him. Maybe not literally, I don't know we we need these things like an iv drip. Sometimes we t- tend to think of the christian walk as like you're going into the doctor and you get a shot, you know, like we come to church on sunday, we get that real shot in the arm and get some praise time in and we're good for 7 days and then we come back. No, i think we're misunderstanding church if we think about it that way. Church is a chemo. Like we're eradicating sin. We're focused. All we're doing, our phones are on silent. We're not looking at instagram. We're not thinking about anything else. We're focused on god's word. And then the rest of the week, we have the IV drip in our arm, and we're just walking around with the bag on the pole. You know, It's just like constantly in our system. We're reading the Word every day. We're praying. We're talking to one another. We're fellowshipping. We're ministering. We're listening to more sermons because we're like a tree. Trees eat all the time. If it was a lion imagery, I wouldn't be saying this because the lion goes out, kills something, he eats it, and then he's good for like a long time, apparently. But the tree is constantly feeding. If we want to be the tree... If we want to be like David, if we want to stare down the trials in this life, we need to constantly be in a relationship with God by participating in what we call the common means of grace, reading the Bible, taking communion, singing songs to him, listening to sermons. That's how we grow as Christians. So generally, basically, what I'm saying is God needs to be our greatest love in order to be like the tree. We need to love God so much that we're willing to let the mighty man take us down as long as it glorifies God. And the way that we do that is by constantly being in a dependent relationship on him, depending on his word, recognizing that we can't figure life out. He's figured it out, and we want to follow him. If we can do that, then we can face down the trials and adversities of life, like Morpheus, with a little smirk on our face. We feel the pain. This isn't this doesn't mean that we go through life and there, there's a trial, trial and struggle. Jesus again is our example. Deep agonizing pain. He was called the man of sorrows. Jesus felt real pain, but there was always this thing lower, was the abiding joy of God, the glory of God that he was looking forward to. So, we feel the pain of life. We have storms. We have trials and difficulties. We have mighty men. We have sin. We have addiction. We have divorce and family problems and wars and rumors and wars and anger in our society. Unparalleled anger all the time. We have all these things. But it's like a tree and there's a storm going around the trunk. But above the storm are the leaves. The leaves are basking in the sun. And then below the storm, below the ground where no one can see, the roots are going down into the living water of the Word of God. So this isn't a sermon about how Christianity means you don't have tough times. This is a sermon about how Christians can be like David, can be like the one who is looking forward to Jesus, the one who won for us this confidence, the one who is like a tree planted in the house of God because they have a source of food that the world doesn't have. The world looks at the peace of David and they say, this doesn't make any sense because they see the storm. They can't see above the storm, to the leaves in the sun, and below the ground to the roots in the water. No matter who we are, though, the mighty man that we face ultimately is not cancer and financial ruin and anger and wars, though those things are terrible, and they're a a mini-mighty man, the ultimate mighty man that we all face is Satan. Right now, Satan is accusing us. He's saying to you, you can't trust in God like that. You can't love him like that. And when Satan says that to me, I say, yeah, you're right, I can't. Only Jesus trusted God like that. He stared down the face of death as death was circling around him and all his friends were just looking at him with tears in their eyes and said, we can't do anything for you. And they raised him up on the cross and he stared death in the face and he said, it is finished. I have won for you the confidence that David is showing. The confidence that David has is in me because I've paid for every sin. And because I will be raised from the dead and I've conquered sin, that means that I'm coming back and every single evil that you've ever faced or will face will be crushed under my feet. Just trust in me. I'll conclude with this. Last week, I came home from a three-day trip today, last week today, and as I came through the door, the first thing I saw was my daughter standing in front of the TV about this far away. And she's doing what she always does. She's holding two little stuffed animals, just watching whatever it is that she watches. And she hears the door open, and she turns around, and instantly, she just drops the, the teddy bears, and she runs to me, screaming, Daddy with this interesting mixture of pure joy, but also like a, a type of fear in her face. And I realized that she, she had realized that my dad's been gone for three days. I love him so much, and oh man, he's been gone. Later that night, I was watching a evangelist on Facebook. I was watching him pray for people in Walmart. And as he prayed for these, these loaders in Walmart who have bad backs and their backs are feeling better and they're getting all excited, and they're going and grabbing their friends, like, hey, have this guy pray for you. He's praying to Jesus, and Jesus is making my back feel better. And just seeing the joy on their face, I'm watching that as I'm walking up the stairs to go to bed, the last one to go to bed, and I just feel the presence of the Lord so heavily upon me, and I just realized I felt exactly like my daughter. I just said, Daddy, I, I miss you. I realized that it's been days since I talked to you. I miss you so much, and I just started weeping, and I fell to my knees, and I'm just Tears pouring on the carpet because I realized how much I need him, how dependent I am on him. And in that moment, guess what I was worried about? Nothing. When we're in that type of relationship with God, there's nothing that can scare us because we know how much he loves us. We know the price he paid on the cross for us. We know the confidence that we have and we know that he's coming for us. This is what David is confident in and this is what you as a Christian can be confident in. Let's pray right now and ask the Lord to apply this to our hearts. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the trial that David went through. We thank you that he was facing death. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that he's pointing to Jesus who was killed at the hands of evil men Yet despite the difficulties and the evil men that were coming around him, despite the anxiety that he must have felt, he was confident in you. He was like a tree planted in the house of God. He was confident in your love for him. Help us now, Lord, to forsake everything in the world that is not of you. Help us, Lord, to love you above all things, because, Lord, when we love you, above everything in the world, even our own families, when we love you that much, we have confidence no matter what Satan throws at us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.